0: I decided to listen to uh, Jennifer's uh, briefing, which uh, was very much only better along the lines of what I would have given, but it certainly prepared me for what I have in store for me with this crowd. Uh, (laughs) So I'm going to tweak my introduction a bit. Uh, But first of all, you might be interested to to see how critical the Middle East is Uh, Take a look at your program over the last two weeks. You've covered all sorts of broad international and international legal issues, but you focused on only one area, and not once, but in three separate uh, discussions of which I'm the third. Uh, There wasn't a North Korean nuclear discussion, although trust me, in this administration rightly so, that's the most worrisome thing. Uh, And there's a reason for that. It wasn't uh, bad judgment on the part of the organizers because the Middle East brings in so many issues, yet it also raises so many questions. So it's a microcosm of everything that is necessary and optional, right and wrong about foreign policy, including the sequence. What I'm going to start, and I was planning on doing that, but after listening to the questions I realized I'd have to beef it up a little bit, uh, talking about broad American foreign policy and why we do X everywhere in the world before I get into the very special problem of the Middle East. Uh, But in a way, the way this course is organized illustrates part of the problem, particularly with the Middle East. Uh, You've got three sessions on the Middle East. You had one yesterday on Syria. You then had one on ISIS this morning. And now you're getting why we're in the Middle East. And you might be saying, isn't that putting the cart backwards? Folks, that's how your government does Middle Eastern policy. They deal with that problem, they deal with this problem, then they scratch their heads and say, gee, doesn't this all fit together somehow? Shouldn't somebody be working on that? Where's McGillicuddy down in, uh, (coughs) uh, you know, Building 23? Isn't he or she doing that? So... The answer is, I'll try to do this, but I do have to take a bit of time to talk about broader American foreign policy. This will sound like uh, motherhood and apple pie a bit, or it'll sound uh, antagonistic to some, but it's very, very important because these are very serious things. People die based upon foreign policy decisions, Americans and other people. uh, They die whether we act or don't act. They die depending on how we act and all of this is very serious stuff. So, uh, U.S. policy since the 1940s has been remarkably consistent. It is to, in a non-imperial way, because that's another model, uh, lead, manage, and provide most of the military muscle to a global collective security, legal institutional and economic system that is based upon liberal values that track back to uh, Wilson's 14 points and the thinking that went into it and in the end is focused not just on a liberal order between states but to a certain degree and boy this gets us into a lot of trouble uh, promoting a liberal order within states that is constitutional systems that look more or less like ours, or Britons, or Denmarks. That has been the core of our foreign policy uh, for over 70 years. It's in question today. But before we look at why it's under question, and there are many good reasons, uh, we need to understand why we got there. There's an alternative. There's several alternative systems. One is an imperial system. But the one that was in vogue before Wilson came along and is much in play now, advocated by the Chinese, advocated by the Iranians, advocated by Mr. Putin, and at times seemingly advocated by Mr. Trump, uh, is a great powers, uh, realpolitik, national interest approach to foreign policy, where countries pursue in a competitive environment their interests vis-a-vis others. Sometimes they form coalitions, sometimes they uh, uh, form friendly engagements, sometimes they have confrontations. Uh, It's not necessarily a bad system. It kept the peace in the world from 1815 to 1914, one year short of 100 years that 's not bad, I mean, there were a few fights, but they were on the periphery, the Crimea, uh, Russia and China and uh, the East, and of course, you know various colonial conflicts, but other than a very brief conflict between um, Germany uh, Prussia and Austria and then Germany and France, there wasn 't much happening in the central areas of North America and oh, We had a civil war, of course, but that wasn 't an international conflict North America and Uh, Europe, the center of the world in the 19th century, for 100 years. But then look what happened. We got the first half of the 20th century. You can't understand why somebody like Jennifer, and if I were giving the talk I would have done the same thing, used the expression, we have to dot 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 I counted at least five times and if I were up here given that same briefing it probably would have been more. Without understanding the context of why we say we have to Because at bottom, what we're saying is, we have to do whatever it takes not to go back to 1914, 1945. Two world wars, probably 100 million killed, and ended only by combat use of nuclear weapons. To return to that world, under far worse circumstances, When the world in some respects is much more netted, is much more together and thus much more vulnerable to disruption, in a world where you not only have conventional weapons, but many thousands of nuclear weapons, not just two, we had three and used two of them, uh, but cyber, New York Times article, and I can tell you uh, it's pretty correct, uh, about the Russian capability to pull down and keep down the American electronic, uh, electro grid. Uh, and Tara, you're talking about a really serious situation that we're trying to avoid. The way we did this is this collective security system because we tried isolationism in the 1930s and it didn't work. The world came to us in very unpleasant ways. So. It still is open to challenge, and I'm happy to take questions on this, but it's important to know where the United States has been coming from and certainly where I'm coming from personally. Now, the problem is this global order in America's role is under challenge. It was under challenge in the last hour here in this hall, and for good reason. First of all, a lot has gone wrong with this global order of late. We have the rise of near-peer competitors. China and Russia, who have very different views of how the international order should be. We have had repeated failures of our own system, Afghanistan and Iraq, and two generations ago or a generation and a half ago, Vietnam. Uh, we've had the rise of China, which now appears to be at least in some respects a threat to us yet this rise while it was mainly done by the Chinese people themselves was enabled encouraged and facilitated by American and international system foreign policy decisions in a nutshell to allow China to participate fully into the international global trade and financial system without adjusting its governmental system and to some degree its foreign policy goals to fit the liberal objectives of that system. Uh, You have the 2008 economic crisis which was a crisis of advanced capitalism and certainly its banking system. You have underlying trends in demographics, trade and economics that are placing in challenge the whole middle class core of modern liberal societies. You have global warming which to some degree is a reaction to glo- is is a result of globalization because so many more billions of people literally are now enjoying middle class existences with automobiles and beef on the plate at night and the impacts that has on the environment and you have the reactions to it so you've got A lot of questions, and the American people have doubts. We saw this not only in the last election, but we saw it in polls by reputable uh, foreign policy-focused polling centers, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in particular, and the Pew Center. Uh, Back as early as 2012, they were recording the lowest support in the American public for foreign policy leadership. Uh, that they had in their entire existence. In the case of the Chicago Council, it went back to the uh, late 1940s. It was quite dramatic. It's come up a bit, interestingly, in the last few years, partially because of ISIS, partially because it simply trends in the way foreign policy uh, is perceived by the American people. But it's still a major problem, and it limits what America can do and requires us to explain when we say we have to dot, 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 why we have to, why uh, the alternative is worse than what we're doing, and how we can keep the costs down of that. Uh, on the Trump administration in particular, we're somewhat caught between Trump's own outbursts and what appears to be a coherent foreign policy that is American system minus. Uh, the best example of the American system minus uh, was an op-ed in the Washington, no, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, written by General McMaster and uh, the economic advisor, Cohn, about four weeks ago after the president's trip uh, to Europe and the Middle East. Uh, and it was America first, the president's uh, motto, but not America alone. And it made the case for uh, uh, several several points. First of all, it said, which is functionally true, but a problem if you're supporting a global order based on values and morality, that there is no international system, there is no international uh, community, is the word they used, I think. And this is a bit aiming at the last administration where Barack Obama would identify the international community as something that we had to make sacrifices or alleged sacrifices to, to support, to advance in such global warming being one example, the outreach to Cuba and several others. Uh, they rejected that, but then they did not reject the idea of America playing a strong role in the world and working, as they use the word, engagement with partners and allies. And that if partners and allies pull their weight, that's a whole other issue, Uh, America will pull their weight. Uh, The weakness is they didn't quite say, pull our weight to do what? And uh, (coughs) some of that is for somebody like McMaster or Kuhn, uh, self-evident, essentially they've grown up as I have in the whole uh, ideology, if you will. It's a secular religion of America playing this global role and the palpable benefits that the United States and much of the world have uh, achieved with that system uh, which I'm happy to get into. Uh, So in conclusion I think in terms of where Trump is going is absent a disaster uh, you will see apart from the fireworks and the fireworks are pretty dramatic at times uh, not Uh, acknowledging the responsibility of the United States to defend our NATO allies under Article 5 was uh, quite dramatic. Uh, Pulling out of the Paris uh, Climate Treaty was quite dramatic, but it had some rationale behind it. I disagree very strongly with that rationale, but I understand it also had some political support behind it in among the voters who voted for Mr. Trump. Whereas uh, not acknowledging NATO's Article 5, it's hard to see the benefit of that. It's hard to see the ideology behind it. But the point is, two weeks later, the President walked out in front of the cameras and twice said that he loves Article 5. He's the best Article 5 supporter in the history of the world, or where it's almost to that effect. So he's basically reversed himself. We see a lot of that. Uh, This is sloppy foreign policy, but it is foreign policy, okay? (laughs) And I'm used to a very low standard of cleanliness in foreign policy long before the Trump administration, so I'll take what I can get. Uh, uh, So to continue, this is not an isolationist government, so much of what we do in the world, we will continue doing. We will not draw as bright and shining a line to these Wilsonian global values as former administrations did. But that line will still be there. Uh, abstract principles are not going to be cited too often. Even uh, the morality of hundreds of thousands of people dying uh, will not be cited unless it's in the President's interest to do so. It was when he uh, fired the uh, uh, Tomahawk missiles at the uh, uh, Syrian base. But on other occasions, it isn't. Uh, expensive commitments like we saw in Iraq, uh, will be avoided. Now, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on this because this is not only an issue that has come up repeatedly as you challenged my colleague unfairly with these questions in the last uh, hour. And by the way, I encourage you to do the same with me. That's what I'm up here for. I'm a pincushion for all of your Questions and all of your arguments because you people, many of you have been in the region or have been around the world and you have your own experiences as well. And I want this to be an exchange because I've got a whole other hour to talk. Uh, (laughs) And uh, the American system has been the most effective and brilliant application of national power on the globe in history. 99% of the actions we have done, even in the Middle East, I just did a paper, I did a paper about almost a year ago now at the Washington Institute where I outlined all of our military engagements in the worst of these regions, the Middle East. And almost 95% of them were successful. And folks... In all of the engagements, meetings, and debates, and discussions we have, nobody ever talks about how dangerous the Yom Kippur DEFCON 2 alert was in 1973. I sure as hell know how dangerous it was as a tank battalion company commander. Nobody talks even about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was far more dangerous to the United States and our survival than Iraq, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Korea put together. Because we won all of these things, and it didn't cost us a lot. When you look at the criticism of the United States broadly, I'm not talking about from a Marxist standpoint. I'm not talking from a strictly isolationist standpoint. And I'm not talking about it from a, uh, a pure internationalist standpoint. All of these ideas exist mainly in universities. But uh, the main argument is a practical one. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan and you could throw in North Korea in 1950. His yeah, go ahead. Sir.
1: Sure. I was trying to not say. That. Is there a concern when America's and in this day and age with an increasingly fragmented and as you say powers are rising elsewhere in the world? Is there a concern when America's foreign policy continues to be we win wars? I mean, we are the best. We are the best at winning wars. We are the strongest. If that's your starting point when you're engaging into sort of arguments or foreign policies about how to solve things, is it perhaps you know this is an antiquated approach in the world we're moving forward? in? because I mean, that's that's an anti- I mean, you're starting from an antagonistic position. You're not starting from a position of discussion, conversation, invitation. You're starting from let's get this fact straight first. We win everything. Now, that, now, from an outsider, we're like, okay, it is true. I mean, you could crush us in, in, a, in, a, in a second. But that is not going to invite the kind of dialogue or, 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 or discussion or potentially solutions that's going to work going forward. And, and, and part of me thinks that America is having a very hard time accepting that its control is slipping. And, and, and I'm not saying whether whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I think probably it's a bad thing geopolitically. But I think it's having a very hard time saying, we're moving into a different phase worldwide, and we have to start looking at different kinds of solutions and strategies and starting points.
0: Uh, two things. I don't think I presented this idea of America winning. I drew a comparison between our system in an imperial system, an imperial system, Rome is a good example. Is we win, was. Well, you just said
1: we won 95 percent of everything.
0: I no, because here's the thing, uh, y- you know, you can't, uh, you know, have your cake and not eat it. You, in particular, but others here, in your criticisms of America, have not criticized the American trade order. You have not criticized. Uh, the promotion of democracy around the world, the criticisms I heard for almost an hour here were all about wars that we fucked up. So therefore, isn't that true? Isn't that what you raised earlier? And it certainly was no, deeper than deeper I don't think than I, that, that, I criticized the
2: war. It, that it, that the criticisms are deeper than that. And my question is, this, is that, first of all, when
0: you talk about the American system, yeah. it was wonderful.
2: No question. It was also the result of the Cold War. Sometimes when I hear people talk about the American system, they remind me of socialists. It's like, you you talk to socialists, it's as if 1989 never happened. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Cold War is over. So, yes, it was a fabulous system, but it was a system that was created by a unique set of circumstances that perhaps have changed. And the second thing is, even if we want that system, if China and Russia don't want it, it ain't happening. I mean, that's the thing. Like, like, how do we enforce a system when, I mean, if, if two great powers in the world, China and Russia, say we're
3: not
2: having the system, it was a fabulous thing, it would have been great if it lasted forever, but what the hell are we going to do about
0: it? Yeah, no, it's a good point. First of all, uh, but I will still come back to, uh, I will still stand on my argument that most of the time when people look at what has gone wrong in American foreign policy, they point to wars that have gone wrong. What I'm trying to say is most of the time, we get our military engagements correct. There's a specific reason why, which I'll get to in a second, we sometimes make major military mistakes. It's a very important uh, corollary to this American system. But let me get back to the system. And again, uh, we do talk, and nobody was more eloquent than Barack Obama. I have a lot of problems with Barack Obama, and Jennifer covered some of them. Uh, But uh, he was a guy who constantly preached, correctly I think, the benefits to the world and to Americans of this system in terms of trade, in terms of bringing people into the middle class, in terms of collective action against global threats uh, from terrorism to uh, global warming and that is all important, that's the core of the system not winning wars against crazy guys running around with Kalashnikovs but part of the system is collective security, that is the motor at the center of it and winning these wars rather than losing them is very important to keep the Americans engaged in the entire system. In terms of the Russians and the Chinese, you're right, but here's the interesting thing. Particularly with China, which is by far the more important challenge, China isn't sure to what degree it wants to challenge the system. Much of its engagement in the world is within this system, be it at the UN, where it's in the Security Council, be it in the Paris Accords, be it in the international trading system in the WTO. In certain areas, China challenges global security, South China Sea being the best example, uh, and I would say to some degree with North Korea. But in other areas, such as the Middle East, China is actually, all in all, to the extent it plays a role, it plays a positive role. China's been supportive of us. Uh, China has challenged Russia. Take a look at China's reaction to Crimea. Take a look at China's reaction to the Ukraine. And even Putin, both, he wants to set up a zone free of the international order. He doesn't want to overthrow the international order. So I think my answer is I don't have an answer. But it doesn't mean the global system is over. The final thing is this is not a product of the Cold War, it's a product of World War II that was then adapted for the Cold War because the threats were the same. Again, it was trying to keep us from falling back into the 1914,
2: 1945 mindset. Yeah, I, I would disagree with that. I think it was a product of the Cold War because the threat of communism papered over a lot of conflicts that sort of simmered. And once, once communism fell and that threat was gone, we're seeing these conflicts back. People sort of went back to the conflicts that they had before. <laughs> it, it, it's a great story to tell yourself as an American that we enforced the world order after World War II, but we helped it, but it was really a set of circumstances that the world benefited.
0: Sure, but we started with World War II. We got into World War II because we were trying to enforce an international system by a trade embargo on Japan and a arms support Uh, facilitation of Britain in its fight against Germany, leading Germany and Japan to independently conclude that they had to take America out. It was just too big, it was too strong, it was too dangerous. America had to be on the chopping block. Uh, But it wasn't because we were just sitting there. Maybe they would have come to that conclusion, but it was our active effort to try to preserve the international system that led to them striking at us to try, in essence, to warn us off, if you will. Nobody was planning on an invasion of uh, the continental U.S., but they were trying to stop our role in the world.
2: But international fascism was a threat in a way other than perhaps radical Islam. I mean, whatever you think of the Russians and the Chinese, they're they're not an existential threat in the way that Nazi Germany or the old Soviet Union Oh, I but agree with ordinary you. ordinary 19th century great powers who have series of influence hmm. and you know,
0: do nasty things. No, no, I agree with you. I would say there, and uh, that's the point I made with the 19th century. Uh, the 19th century system was not as, from moral terms or even in cataclysmic realpolitik terms, as great a threat to global order and global peace as the Nazi fascist threat or the communist threat. But it was still a system that wound up bringing us fascism and communism in two world wars, so that means it's not necessarily something that we should sit back and let happen.
2: Well, I don't know if you could say that was the system that gave us that, I mean that's like saying that the whole uh, U.S. system gave us uh, radical Islam and jihadism, and other things go on, and there are other things that are happening besides the international system. I don't think it's fair to blame the imperial system or the old system, to communism and fascism on, on the old system.
0: Oh, I, I think it is. Okay. Uh, anyway, let me continue because I have to get to the Middle East here. Uh, Again, this can be challenged and has been challenged, including in the last 10 minutes. But uh, my job is not just to advocate, it's also to explain. Most of the people who do foreign policy in the United States to one or another degree more or less accept this schematic this dynamic. The American people have gone along with this with only a couple of exceptions. These exceptions have been when we violate our own containment strategy because the collective security part of this has always been defensive. It has been to protect the perimeters of the system in those countries that sign up for it. It has not been what it was called once upon a time rollback. And that was a big debate in the 1940s and into the 1950s. Finally, President Eisenhower resolved it, uh, but it was very active in Republican circles uh, and led to one specific operation uh, going into North Korea in the fall of 1950. Ninety-eight percent of all Americans killed in combat since World War II have been killed in only four of the some 50 or 60 different conflicts where Americans have been pulling triggers. The attempt to liberate North Korea in 1950, and then the second war in Korea between the US and the UN and China, as a result of that, that provoked that, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The billions we spend have only been spent in these conflicts. The rest of this has been done pretty much on the cheap, which is why the American economy, if not the benefits of all Americans, has risen so well uh, over the past 70 years. Uh, We have not spent ourselves into the ground. Even in these conflicts, the problem is once you get up to a trillion dollars, it gets into real money, it gets into real national debt, and it's highly questionable to the health of the economy. But again, in each of these cases, we violated the game plan That's President Obama's word. And we tried to change states. We tried to do nation building. We tried to grab countries and reverse their internal order in the way they thought. We did it in North Korea. We thought the North Koreans had to pay for invading uh, uh, South Vietnam. We didn't think that about Saddam in 1991. We let him just go back to the border after uh, we pushed him out of Kuwait. That was the right decision. Korea was the wrong decision. How many? How often have you heard in all of your discussions about foreign affairs, somebody say, this American order that people like that Jeffrey talk about is all screwed up because look what happened in 1990, 1991 with the Gulf War. You almost never hear that because the Gulf War was a success because we didn't make this mistake. Vietnam, we lost Vietnam in 1954. There's a strategic argument that could be made for holding on to the remnants of it, but that would have required exactly what we did from 1970 to 1973 with General Abrams in Vietnam, which was reducing by 90% our troop presence while being successful in holding on to those areas of Vietnam that had a population that was not friendly to the North Vietnamese. The idea of winning all of Vietnam we couldn't do with a force ten times that size. And in Afghanistan and Iraq, as you all well know, that was an effort to take over a country, recreate it. We can't do this. It doesn't work. We've only tried it a few times and it has led to 99% of I think not the legitimate criticisms of uh... american foreign policy because they're far broader and they cover many other aspects of it but the ones that have the most resonance in the, uh... public's mind so let's get to the middle east which of course is a place that sucks you in and dangles before you the option to try to change states and change things because it seems to be so messed up let's start with why we're in the middle east uh, there are four key american interests and. No less of an authority than the guy who tried to pivot out of the Middle East, Barack Obama, summarized these. First is maintaining the flow of hydrocarbons to the global economy. Now, somebody might say, whoa, but we don't have to do this anymore. That's why we are in there for so long, because we bought Saudi oil. Now we don't have to anymore. Well, first of all, we still buy Saudi oil. Uh, The percent of oil that we buy as a factor of our total oil consumption today while it has dropped dramatically and will drop more, is roughly what it was when 19, in 1973 when the oil embargo brought our economy to its knees. It will drop more, but it will never drop entirely unless there are several circumstances under which it might by 2026, according to most international uh, economic analysis of that. But the point is, the price of that oil, as I mentioned earlier with Iraq, the price of that oil at the pump is based upon the global supply and demand, there is no other economic commodity that works as frictionless as oil for a number of reasons. If you cut off that oil because there is a war and various straits don't function anymore or the countries in the region band together as they did in 73 and decide to screw with us, uh, our economy and the economy of our major trading partners, including uh, Japan, China, uh, and Western Europe will immediately be impacted in a very, very severe way. so that 's an important consideration. Terror you heard about earlier from Jennifer, uh, terror does not stay inside the Middle East in various ways it comes and gets us. And while homegrown terror is very hard to stop because it 's not a population you 're dealing with, according to every poll I have seen it 's only a tiny percent of indigenous communities even in places where they're not well integrated like France that actually are tempted to take up arms and kill people. It's very, very small and it's very hard to get to as anybody who studied economics knows that last two or three percent of any phenomenon. It's very, very hard. The more resources you put in you make a lot of progress initially. So therefore trying to shape not just the bulk of a community in Birmingham or Manchester but those outliers, those asocial people in many respects are so strange people. It's as difficult as trying to keep people from killing themselves. It's very, very hard to do that. But the m- more serious threat <coughs> is the sort of threats we've seen from Paris two years ago to 9-11, where an organization in the Middle East has the time to plan a really big attack. Really big attacks have far more dramatic consequences, obviously 9-11 did, than somebody who drives a truck into a crowd. As tragic as that is for the individuals, uh, something like Paris where several hundred people were killed and a lot more could have been killed if the authorities weren't lucky, particularly in the uh, soccer stadium. Uh, That is something that has a huge impact on a state and a state's reaction to the outside. So terror is very important. Weapons of mass destruction. the Iranians still have plans to move forward under certain circumstances. The Syrians, it's not just chemical weapons. The Israelis bombed a uh, plutonium reactor that was almost ready to produce visible material in 2007. Uh, Libya in the past has used them. Uh, Iraq has uh, used chemical weapons. Uh, Libya has had a nuclear program. Iraq has had, nu- Iraq had every kind of program. Uh, Egypt for a while, and the recourse to nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction technology, particularly with rogue actors such as North Korea on the scene, uh, is quite frightening. Finally, it's a question of allies. Uh, The dean of uh, John Hopkins, uh, SICE, Fali Nasa, a guy who knows the Middle East pretty well, uh, was giving a talk on the same subject a few days ago. And he mentioned uh, the impact of America not standing up for its red line and for our allies in the Middle East on his interlocutors in East Asia, in Korea, Japan, and elsewhere. That is something that has characterized the entire history of the American system since World War II. The German decision to rearm in the 1950s was taken deliberately because we were willing to lose 35,000 Americans in Korea. The Germans figured if the Americans do that in Korea, they'll certainly do that for middle Europa. And they were right. So uh, allies and partners are not only important in and of themselves, they're important for the functioning of the system. So that's why we're in the Middle East. Now, uh, what are we going to do about the Middle East? Because the Middle East is the problem that never goes away. Broadly speaking, in dealing with this system, it's one of the reasons I advocate this American system, we get involved in a region and it gets kind of dicey for a while and then it kind of gets fixed and we either go away or our presence is limited and peaceful. Uh, Obviously, Europe right after World War II. Uh, East Asia from 1950 to 1973. At the end of it, we had basically won. China had flipped, and the efforts to undercut our allies and friends in the region have been stopped everywhere. Now, two years later, Vietnam went down, but by that time it had no geostrategic significance. East Asia was a success at very high cost. And we haven't had much going on there other than the South China Sea and North Korea since then. For a huge area, that's pretty important. Uh, Central America, very active in the 1980s as part of the Cold War. Uh, very difficult, very controversial. In the end, it's quieted down, and uh, the region has moved on. It's not a generator of uh, uh, instability for South America or for the world. Uh, The Balkans in the 1990s, the same thing. Uh, That exercised souls in the Clinton administration. We lost uh, between 100,000 and 150,000 people in the Bosnian conflict compared to Syria, That's actually a higher percent of the population killed in violence, uh, uh, intersectoral violence. The Middle East never goes away. Since 1979, when radical forms of Islam, not only the Iranian Shia form, but also Sunni uh, forms, particularly uh, manifested in the assault on the Grand Mosque in Mecca, uh, made their appearance dramatically the old system of nation states has melted down in most of the region. And that is the underlying phenomenon that we're dealing with, because the way this system that we use works, the way we've applied it in East Asia, in the Balkans, in uh, Central America, involves very much international law in nation states and sovereignty, what we call, and it's a word that's only come out in the last, uh, uh, the Westphalian peace. I studied European history for years and I thought I was the only one who knew about the Westphalian peace, but in the last 15 years, it just rolls off everybody's tongues because it's the idea of traditional international law and uh, uh, sovereign states and sovereign decisions. The Middle East has a very hard time with this. Uh, The UNDP, which is the UN organization responsible for trying to develop uh, the world, Uh, did a remarkable survey in 2002 of the Arab states, but it would also apply to Pakistan and Afghanistan, that basically found by almost every measure of modern education, health, empowerment of women, empowerment of minorities, the Middle East was falling further and further behind the rest of the world. I've seen follow-up analyses that say that even Sub-Saharan Africa is making more progress from a lower base than the Middle East. This is the underlying Accelerance of the problems that became manifest in Syria and elsewhere in 2011. There are only three true nation states as we understand them in the Middle East. And I didn't take a survey. I hope none of you here are from one of the states I'm just going to read off as a non state. But basically, the three are Turkey, Israel, and Iran. And the rest are not only. artificially created states by various colonial powers before or after World War I, but they're manifest in various other creeds from very local ones, Basra people, Mosavis and Mosul and such, and the overarching role of Islam in these countries and states. It's different obviously in Israel, which isn't predominantly uh, Muslim in terms of its population, and in Turkey and Iran for various reasons, Islam, while it plays a very important role in Iran, does not have this pan-universal role that uh, you see in the Arab world. So the ability to use the normal tools of power to try to contain struggles is very, very hard to apply in the Middle East where you do not have the basic building blocks and that is a problem that has confronted all administrations since 1979 and it's one that's confronting this administration. So let me get to <coughs> these guys and <coughs> what the Trump administration is going to do about this mess. The last two American presidents have blown the Middle East largely because Uh, they tried to fix the problem rather than manage the problem. Again, the American system since World War II, and George Kennan was pretty explicit in writing this up, is to deal with the problem, contain it, wait it out, (coughs) not try to fix it. We tried to fix it in North Korea. I already covered that. We tried to fix it in Southeast Asia, and we tried to fix Middle Eastern problems (coughs) uh, in the bush. And Obama administrations, and we just made things worse. Motivated by 9-11, President Bush felt that something dramatic had to happen in the Middle East. Egged on by people who saw the Middle East as a Eastern Europe 1989 in the desert, the thought was get rid of the governing elites who were evil, the Saddams, the Khomeinis, the Qaddafis, the Assad's. And the people will embrace liberal democracy just like they did in Poland and Hungary. Bear in mind that today in Poland and Hungary we have some pretty serious problems with those populations, but leave that to one side. That was the thought in 2004. So rather than just contain and wait out Saddam with occasional bombing campaigns, Desert Fox 1998, and uh... no-fly zones in the north and in the south and this was expensive it was tying up twenty thirty thousand troops out of the one point seven million active in reserve we had and people were a little irritated can't we do something about this so we did and you know the mess uh... and we did something similar in afghanistan there bush (laughs) was more cautious but obama leaped in you know being obama rather than bush he didn't leap in quite the same way that bush did but he still did a surge (coughs) got us over 100,000 U.S. troops and a very large contingent of NATO troops that in many cases actually fought, unlike most of our allies in Iraq, Uh, particularly uh, the Canadians, the Danes, uh, at times the Germans, obviously the British and others. But it still didn't work out very well because we were trying to do too much and we weren't focused on the diplomatic problems in the region around these countries. So President Obama also thought that we were part of the problem ironically even though he did go into uh, Afghanistan uh, he pivoted away and thought that the region could nurture itself now exhibit A to why he was wrong and why I'm a believer in this global system despite all of the very accurate very correct and uh, uh, cogent criticisms that I've heard here today is look at Syria look at Syria the rise of ISIS and for the first time A Sunni extremist, terrorist, violent, apocalyptic organization that owns a state of sorts. Uh, The refugee stream to Europe that I think is what made the difference with Brexit and has threatened the uh, internal structure of all of Europe right now. Uh, The empowerment of Russia as a Middle Eastern military power and Russia under Putin is a guy who only cares about military victories and he's racked up a few and Iran on the march through the region, which has several really serious problems. First of all, it's a violation of the idea which is central to the American system that you can't carve out a part of the earth and say, okay, the global system works except in my area and my near abroad because I'm the great power and everybody else has to adjust to me. That's Putin's argument. That's also Iran's argument. So that's Iran as a hegemonic player. Secondly, Iran is also <coughs> um, at least arguably, an ideological uh, player in the sense of empowering the Shia Muslims of the region and Islam in particular and that 's a very complicated subject but suffice me to say that suffice to say that uh, Islam plays a certain role in what Iran is doing, particularly uh, with Shia communities. The third reason that iran is and is part of this Iran undercuts the already weak nation state system by and Lebanon's the best example but I saw this in Iraq for three years uh, going in and taking over various groups and getting them to swear allegiance to if not the Iranian state to Khamenei the uh, supreme leader of Iran and arguably one of the supreme leaders of uh, uh, Shia Islam and to actually be used against the state structure of the country they're in. Again, there's Lebanon as an example, Syria to some degree an example, although there it's complicated because you have a uh, Iranian ally in Assad. But it's interesting that the Russians keep on trying to build up, I don't know, you're the expert, the conventional Assad true uh, government forces and structures, while the Iranians are out there trying to find Shia and trying to find revolutionaries and others who are off-budget and reporting more to Iran than to the central government. They don't trust Assad for good reasons, but they also are not interested in building up the Syrian state. They're interested in an Iranian empire. That is a real threat and is perceived to be a threat to the people of the region, and it's a threat to us. It's a threat to Israel. It's a threat to all of these uh, interests that I enumerated a bit earlier. Uh, And the third uh, problem with Iran and Jennifer went into this in a lot of detail. I'll just touch on it But it's very important. Iran is the main accelerant of Sunni extremism in the Middle East today Iran and its creation the Assad regime and the Assad regime not the Assad regime that maybe we could live with that was one of the questions of 1999, but the Assad regime of 2000 and 2014, 2015, the barrel bombing Assad regime that is declaring total war on most of its own population. That is a creation of Iran. It didn't have to be that way. Iran is the main factor and helped by Russia. So, what a mess. What's Trump and company going to do about this? Uh, first of all, the one thing we can be sure of is they will find a way to fight ISIL and Al Qaeda and other Islamic terrorists. And again, Uh, jennifer covered that very well Uh, they may get it wrong because it's easy to get this wrong again you heard a lot about that Uh, but that certainly will be a top priority and it sometimes will blind them to other issues such as Assad and such as iran although separately uh, they want to contain iran and the president heard a hell of a lot about this in the last month and a half that's all the saudis talked about they gave lip service to fighting ISIS and terror and all of that and promised to create an anti-terror college or some foolish thing, one of the many promises they make. And they'll do a little bit on the margins, but that's not where their heart is. Their heart is taking on Iran. Uh, that's what he heard from Bibi Netanyahu. It's what he heard from Erdogan, although Erdogan doesn't look at this, the Turkish uh, president, and as a Shia versus Sunni so much as, uh, and he used the term recently, Persian expansionism. So it's a somewhat different approach and somewhat more reasonable than the Saudi one, which is purely, not purely, but largely based on religion. Uh, The problem with that is, as we saw as soon as the president left the region, the Saudis, along with the Emiratis, managed to split the entire anti-Iranian and anti-ISIS coalition right down the middle by waging a war against not the Iranians, not Raqqa, but Gaddafi the center of our Air Force and forward headquarters of our military in the region. And the region we're in Gutter is because the Saudis threw us out of Saudi Arabia uh, over a decade ago. So uh, and who lines up behind Qatar? Among others, Kuwait, Turkey, Iraq. Where are almost all of our forces in the Middle East if they're not in Qatar? Kuwait, Turkey, Iraq. Who created this monster of a foreign policy? The answer, we did, because we patted the Saudis on the head and said, we got your back, Baba. You're our regional champion. You go out there and do what you think is right because we Americans mess things up and we want to support you from afar. That's what we've learned around the world from Chiang Kai-shek in the 1940s and China on forward. You empower your local champion because it's too hard for us to get involved. And your local champion creates total chaos that we lose, everybody in the region loses. So the Obama uh, Trump administration is now trying to fix gutter, so it stopped its whole effort to even think about Iran while, again, as Jennifer said, it's almost daily engaged in low-level firefights with Iranian-supported forces. I mean, this is, you you know, you just look at this, you would think after so many years, haven't we learned? Why are we doing this without having an overall policy? Because this administration doesn't have an overall policy. Because the third element of it worked through and with allies. They borrowed that from uh, the Obama administration. But again, and here Obama went too far. But he did realize the Saudis in particular would take him down rabbit holes. He didn't want America going down. And that's what we see right now. Okay, So how do we get out of this thing? Give me two or three minutes, and then I'll open up for questions. One, uh, ISIS is the most dramatic and immediate problem along with Al-Qaeda and it's the one where we have the most support in the United States, in the international community, and to some degree even in the region and we have to keep on going after ISIS. It is not going to go away. Secondly, we have to figure out what we're going to do with Iran. Iranian missiles again struck, I think it was the uh, Emiratis' uh, naval vessel off the coast of Yemen. That's another uh, strategic part of the global waterways, just like the Gulf of Hormuz, that the Iranians are now active in. Uh, again, we have them in Syria. Uh, we have a very difficult problem facing us in Iraq as we move forward against ISIS. Are we going to be able to stay on there and avoid uh, the Iraqis making exactly the same problems that produced ISIS in 2014? I don't know. But people are trying to figure this out, but they haven't come up to a policy yet. Our partners. Again, we rely on them, but let's inventory them really quickly. The Saudis, I talked about uh, their approach to Yemen. I have some sympathy for them. They do not want and they will never yield to a situation in Yemen analogous to uh, the Israeli situation with my Israeli uh, southern Lebanon. In fact, you even mentioned it. Uh, Success is not having some rockets flying. And there are 150,000 Iranian rockets or Russian rockets passed on by the Iranians and southern Lebanon aimed at Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia will not let that happen. However incompetent they are, and they are writing new chapters in military incompetency, however brutal they are, if they have to kill everybody in Yemen to avoid that from happening, they will. Uh, Because the impact of that on a pretty together, militarily potent state like Israel is dramatic on Saudi Arabia. It's game changing for the whole Middle East. But that makes Saudi as much a problem as it is an ally. Israel, again, has done well in these conflicts. But its ability to fit into the region will always be overshadowed by the Palestinian West Bank issue and even deeper issues. So that can only go so far. Turkey, uh, I know President Erdogan, he is not a stable leader. Uh, His heart is not in the right place. The only good news is, we're not the enemies close to him. That's Iran and Russia. We're the unfriendly force away from him, so he's going to probably work with us, but that will not be a very satisfactory relationship. In Egypt, which we used to put a lot of effort into, has gone belly up domestically, economically, and diplomatically, uh, both with us and other than its reversal recently to go along with the Saudis on Gutter, even with the Saudis over Syria. So this is... On paper, this is most of the Middle East. This is most of the soldiers, most of the tanks, most of the airplanes in the Middle East are on our side. We don't need to put much effort into it because these guys have the bigger order of battle, except that they are totally divided. They're at each other's throats. They're not getting along. And that requires, to the extent it is fixable, and I don't know if it is, it's only fixable if we're in there diplomatically, at least on the margins militarily, and trying to make everybody by constant work pull in the same direction. I think that can be done. I'm not sure we're going to do it. Okay, questions? Yeah.
4: state, and maybe we don't know those mistakes again. Libya was supplied by um, Britain $183 million worth of weapons six months before Libya was attacked. Now, I just saw on the news that the U.S. is supplying $12 billion worth of weapons to Qatar a few days after calling it a terrorist state.
0: A few days after President Trump called it a terrorist state. You make the mistake of confusing the US and Trump. Okay, In this administration, that may not necessarily be correct. But
3: from my country, they are kind of synonymous.
0: I understand the problem of perception you have. Yes.
4: But it's improved after I've come here. Now, the other issue is that the, let's say these are past mistakes and the supplying of weapons, which is very critical to the economy, has taken place. And that is fomenting wars. And that is exactly why you have to come in and check the situation in the Middle East. Because from what I can see, U.S. has supplied arms to almost every country in the Middle East. And let's see where we are going forward from here. And, and I take in Pakistan. And Pakistan is a pretty much a failed state. You have Islamic fundamentalists who are trying to control the government. You have a constitutionally elected government that has actually no power. They've changed the constitution three times. The army is at four fools. They're a nuclear, weapon, a nuclear armed country. Closely aligned with China and still the US supplies the latest F sixteens and armaments to it. So have we learned from mistakes? Or are we what we have done in the past, let's it forget. We probably didn't anticipate that as you said, your champion in the Middle East turned against you because you got X amount of arms. But where we are going forward with this, and how does the US policy play
0: out? Thank you. Oh, yeah. On my list of bad allies, I have the Saudis, Israel, Turkey, Egypt, I forgot Pakistan. (laughs) Uh, But the problem is, uh, to quote, uh, misquote Don Rumsfeld, you go to (coughs) diplomatic and military engagements and wars with the allies you have, not the allies you want. Because we don't have, the last ally we wanted was Tony Blair, (coughs) and look what happened to him politically by going along with us. Um, Now, I'll defend... We can't have it both ways. We, I mean, aside from an isolationist foreign policy, we either arm other people to do at least part of the fighting, if fighting must be, or we do it all ourselves. Give me an example of a country who we've armed, who then has invaded a neighbor. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Iran, uh, we gave no weapons to the uh, Islamic, Republic of Iran. We gave weapons to an earlier government, then that government would belly up, but we haven't armed Iran. Yeah. We effectively
2: did, though. That. That's a risky take when you start handing out arms. Yeah, okay.
0: Okay, all right, all right. You, you get you get partial credit on that one, Iran. Okay, give me another example. Iraq.
1: Iraq. Iraq.
0: Where did, Iraq. Wait, Iraq what weapons Iraq. did we give Iraq? During the, war between the Iran war. And Iraq. No, No, tell me me a weapon. We supplied 10 Huey helicopters without gun mounts. That is the extent of concrete weapons. Now, we were absolutely up to here with Iraq against Iran. And that was good policy, and I'll tell you why. Did we encourage Iraq to invade Iran? No. This is one of the great myths of the Middle East. I'm glad this was raised so I get a chance to beat this one down, okay. Uh, because it's part of the, you know, 10 greatest, inconsistent, hypocritical, why America really is worse than communism and its role in the world arguments. We supported Iraq in its aggressive policy against Iran. No. Iraq's aggressive policy against Iran lasted a year and a half. And guess what happened? Just like in 1991, when we pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwait, the Iranians pushed the Iraqis out of Iran. Now we're in 1983. What happened then? The war ended? No, the war didn't end until 1988. The bulk of that war and almost most of the people who were killed were killed in another invasion, an invasion of Iran into Iraq. That was a dangerous invasion. Who the hell ever thought that Saddam Hussein could take a country three times its size, motivated while it was weakened in terms of its institutions by the revolution. It had revolutionary fervor, and that's always a bad thing to go against, as several powers learned after World War I, against uh, the communists in uh, Russia. And uh, if you look at the terrain on the uh, Iranian side, where the Iraqis went in, it's desert and mountains, more mountains than desert, and it was just bad terrain. However, Iran then turns around and pushes into Iraq with the intention, as far as we could all see, of seizing the south of Iran, of Iraq. That's strategic territory. That's, now it's up to 170 billion barrels of oil reserves, roughly two-thirds of Saudi Arabia's. That's Najaf and Kabbalah, the centers of the alternative Iranian, of Shia, uh, religious world, that's really serious stuff. That got our friends and allies in the region worried and that got us worried too because we did not want to see an expansionist Iranian revolutionary movement for very good reasons. So we supported in various ways the Iranians, or the Iraqis rather, but we didn't give them any weapons. So I still say, give me an example. Yemen. With the Saudis, okay, on the margins, but again, they feel that uh, that's like saying the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006. They had American weapons, but they invaded because they were provoked. They were defending their own borders. Again, by and large, weapons 99.9 percent of the weapons we have sold people around the world have not been used to invade other countries. Want me to start with the Russians and the Chinese? In- invasion is very broad
4: term. Yeah, I know.
0: Okay, all right, okay, okay. Well, look, we're gonna, we're gonna have to take a draw on this question. Okay, uh, John. Yeah,
3: regarding,
2: regarding oil, oil um, I mean, it's pretty much consensus now. I mean, OPEC wants to bring back the, the good old days of 100 for oil, and it's, it's not working. I mean, OPEC is more or less dead. And the question is, doesn't that really change our calculus in the Middle East? Because the ability, it's not 1973 anymore. The ability of, of, of the Middle East to drive oil prices Thanks to our friends in Canada and North Dakota, it just doesn't exist like it once did. And so you say, like, well, say you know, say we have a Persian Empire. Well, they can't control the it anymore. And even if they could, well, what the hell are they going to do? Drink it? They got to sell it, or it's not
0: any good. Yeah, I mean, it changes it both psychologically, and that's important, and on the margins in terms of raw. They don't have the
2: raw power they once did.
0: Uh, they don't have the raw power they once did, which was extraordinary. But they still have a fair amount of power not to by holding back oil controlling prices for the moment because of the North American ability not only to produce a lot of oil but to produce a lot more oil very quickly if prices go up. And what happens when you curtail production or shipment? Prices go up. it's the greatest
2: strategic asset yeah.
0: we have right now. The pro- You know, it is. The problem is um, there are two threats that arise from hydrocarbons in the Middle East. One is something like 1973, which is only done once. Uh, the second one, which occurred in 1979, uh, with and then again in 1990, is when wars curtail the flow of oil from the Middle East. We're in somewhat better shape now, although we just got rid of half. Or we're getting rid of half of our oil reserves for some strange reason, which is going to hurt us. But we have more of an ability to react right now. But that's a passing phenomenon. The analysis of the International Energy Agency, and I've talked to the guy who runs it several times, Fatih Perol, to make sure he knows what he's saying, and he says he does, is that by the middle of the next decade we will be more dependent on Middle Eastern oil than we are now because other sources are drying up so we're back to the problem not just of an embargo like 1973 which i agree they're less able to do but of an embargo that is a result of war and conflict that countries are shut in that, that
2: was a few questions. the other question which is first of all those guys have been wrong pretty much consistently for the last 30 years, so I don't know that I buy their predictions. Maybe they'll be right, maybe they'll be wrong, but what they were saying 10 years ago yeah. does not bear in the reality of what's happening today, their predictions. You, you have a
0: point, but I mean, have to, I important. have to draw on facts. It used to be
2: peak oil, you know, and that's what they were saying forever, and yeah, who, who says that anymore? So I don't know that I buy their predictions. Maybe they'll be right, but I don't know that I buy their predictions. And second of all, who's most affected by that, and that's China. And no, at no. some point, doesn't China have to heck take an interest in the Middle East because it, they're they're more economically dependent on it
0: than we are? Okay, you just you're just violating the, the Jim Jennifer never do it rule of they have to or we have to or we must. No, the Chinese don't have to, and to some degree, they're happy with us doing that. Well, and I heard that when I was in but China. But good. If they don't have to, then why do we have to? Uh, because we have the ability, and we have we are expected
3: to do so. It's a bad answer. What's well, that? that's I an absurd answer one of the things that you mentioned before was that um, I, it was a reference to the canon containment theory and, and, and I think that's one of the problems to me that we have strategically in how we think of because there was for a long time this idea that we would simply contain all the problems by having dictators, by having Strong men um, run it. And so, what did we do in most most countries, but particularly in the Middle East? We we told our we told our dictator that they needed to provide an outlet. And so, what did our dictators basically do? They provided the outlet to the to the Islamic community, which is so that you had the Brotherhood in Egypt, you had you had other places, and then and then eventually they end up taking over social services that the government doesn't provide they get they get stronger and then we end up when when there is an explosion they're the ones who can step into the breach because they're the only ones who are organized they're the only ones who've been allowed to be that so I, I, I'm, I'm always concerned about and I and I'm not suggesting that there's a better answer right now I don't have one I think Jennifer was maybe perhaps alluding <coughs> to the fact that we need to, to start thinking Truly strategically about what we're going to do. But we've run into major problems 10 years down the road, five years down the road, 20 years down the road, from <coughs> simply basing our thing as okay, well, let's keep a lid on the problems today and let's not worry about it tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. we'll, we'll deal with tomorrow tomorrow. Yeah. Part, part of this is A, that's how every government
0: works. I was in the White House, it's how, I, I mean, you have over in at 13. You have a strategic planning cell, and you might see them in the Oval Office once every six months. Whereas you're in there five times a day because something has gone bang in the night, and you got to come up with a way to fix it immediately. That's what drives so much foreign policy, and there's no easy solution to it. But on the dictatorship and cannon thing, because this is this is a very uh, Uh, interesting uh, uh, issue and problem and it illustrates the problem with the Middle East. We supported a lot of dictators around the world over the past 70 years. We did it for two reasons, A, if you want to run a containment strategy and you don't want to have to maintain a 10 million man and woman army, uh, you got to go with the local actors and unless you're prepared to intervene in societies to change their government and state, and if there's one thing I have tried to preach today, it's don't do that because every time you do it you get in trouble, you have to go with who you have, so therefore it was convenience. The second thing was, and the uh, proponent of that is somebody forgotten today, but very important 30 years ago, Gene Kirkpatrick, who said, whoa, there's a difference between totalitarian states and dictatorial states, because dictatorial states in the American system evolved to be liberal democracies. And they did. And they did. East Asia, by and line South America. Here's the problem. When one place they haven't
3: Middle East.
0: The Middle East. So the Middle East is a separate problem, which is why you're spending how many hours on the Middle East in this two-week course. The Middle East doesn't the, the normal solutions that we have, which we've covered and criticized and argued about here, give them weapons, provide limited American military presence, diplomatic leadership ride things out, hope that countries will evolve in the proper uh, direction just as they have most places around the world, doesn't work in the Middle East. So therefore, write it off, but you can't write it off unless you are able to challenge my four interests which some of you have been doing a pretty good job trying to do, but they're still out there and I think that they're still pretty valid. So, you're stuck with these dictators and uh, when they go down, you sometimes get worse things. We thought that the Muslim brothers would be reasonable when they took over from Mubarak in 2011. And they turned out to be really bad. So then the military came in and he, Sisi, General Sisi is not very good either. I,
3: I, yeah, I'm not suggesting that there's necessarily an alternative to, to a lot of that. My, my point <coughs> is that we do need to think yeah. beyond that which we which, no. which, given our political system, doesn't generally allow that. Um, but I, 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 and I also never did understand why they thought the brother would so love another. What were they thinking? No. Yeah.
0: That's why you have an American Foreign Service. Typically, one of us could be next to the president, whispering before he goes into his meeting with the Saudi king. Look, <laughs> this guy's going to try to sell you a bill of goods. Okay, tell him, look, we're going to support the international community against Iran, we're going to lead the fight against ISIS, but we're going to get back to you on how this is going to be done. Here's my telephone number, call me before you want to do anything. That's not the conversation that occurred in Riyadh. Had that conversation occurred, had the Saudis been warned and pushed back, and Trump's good at this. Look at how he did it with the Europeans. You know, He can insult people pretty well. If he had insulted the Saudis a little bit rather than the sword dance, they might have thought twice before doing what they did in Gutter, or they might have called him and said, hey, we got such a great idea. Then he would have turned to the people who've been working in the region for 40 years, and they would have said, look, here are the first 20 reasons why this is a really bad idea. Those conversations never yeah. happened. That uh, lets the Foreign Service a little off
2: the hook. There, there's people that are working for the region for 40 years that have come up with some pretty crazy ideas themselves. Yeah, I don't true. know that that's... that's it, anyway.
3: Does that that I wonder if I can intervene sure. here for a moment and, and get us back to sort of a fundament here. I, I, I'm with you in terms of the uh, need to be engaged. I'm with Jennifer uh, on this completely uh, on it. But I'd like to ask you the same question I asked Jennifer. Uh, what is the overall political strategic uh, plan in Syria and in Iraq? And I'm assuming they're interrelated, but they're also somewhat separate. So what are they? And along the way, presumably things that are, that are basically controlling, uh, containing Iran and Iranian uh, bad activity. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, you're asking what Jim Jeffrey's plan would be, because I think yes. I've answered what Donald Trump's plan yes. is, which is... Uh, Uh, Call back next month. Yes. Okay. Jim Jeffrey's plan, which is very similar to Jennifer's plan, is, first of all, do no harm. There is nothing in Iraq or Syria that requires the mass deployment for indefinite social engineering purposes of American troops. Period. Don't go there. What can you do if you don't go there, if you don't try to fix the thing by essentially enveloping it in American uniforms? First of all, We have allies all over Iraq and Syria. Secondly, we have goals that are pretty similar to theirs. The Kurdistan Regional Government in the north of Iraq, to some degree, the other Iraqi players, only a few of them are totally in the Iranian camp. The various allies we have in Syria in the south and in the north, and the Turks have their own enclave in the north too with the Free Syrian Army, which day in, day out, depends on the day and the time of the day, are also our allies. We arm them sometimes and we don't. I mean, this is all very confusing, but it tracks back to the Obama Administration's very confusing policies. Uh, The basic approach I would advocate is continue the struggle against ISIS for all kinds of reasons while simultaneously making it clear that we want Iraq Syria solution, because that is the heart of the Middle East. If you get that wrong, the rest of the Middle East, you may succeed in the Sinai, you may succeed in Pakistan, but that's the heart of the Middle East. It – we will not tolerate an Iranian hegemony over that region from Tehran to Lebanon, not only because we don't tolerate hegemonies generally, not only because we don't like the Iranian ideological pitch, but because That is a recipe for total war in the Middle East, and it is a recipe to take the 85 percent of the region that is Sunni and push them towards the one force that will stand up under any and all conditions to the Shia, which is ISIS and ISIS offshoots. So we just create far more terror and far more chaos. Uh, And we do that by basically doing what we did in Afghanistan for eight years. We essentially say, hey, we get to play the insurgents. We will arm these people. We will support them. We will back them diplomatically. We will make life difficult for you. At the same time, and we haven't talked much about this, we need a diplomatic strategy. We need to talk finally with the Pakistanis about Afghanistan. They're the number one problem. Why are they allowing that insurgency to go on the way it is? We need to have a conversation with the Iranians. That's hard, because you can't do it with the guys we did the nuclear agreement with, because they're the front guys to deal with us. You got to do it with Qasem Soleimani. We've tried this a couple of times. We tried it when I was in Iraq in 2011, and the answer, I don't think it was the answer, but simultaneous uh, Qasem Soleimani tried to blow up the cafe Milano to kill Adel Jabeer, the Saudi ambassador to Washington. So that was the end of that, and Ryan Crocker and Dave Petraeus tried it. in. 2008, and it didn't get very far either. But we still have to try to explain to the Iranians that we're not going to try to overthrow their system. We're not going to try to dump the nuclear agreement, which the Iranians like. We're not going to go after them. And this would be hard for the Trump administration to enunciate and admit to, but if they want a uh, solution, they're going to have to do something like that. But on the other hand, we're not going to allow Iran to continue gaining ground around the Middle East. We're going to find ways to make life very difficult for it and send up the cost. This worked with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. It won't work if you're trying to overthrow Iran. Iran, the bulk of the Iranian people, want to have good relations with the rest of the world. They do not care about the Syrians. They do not even care about Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And they certainly don't care about Yemen. That's how I would approach this. Can I then sketch out an endgame? We never sketched out an end game in the Balkans in the 1990s, and I worked on it. We didn't sketch out an end game in East Asia in the 1950s and 60s. You just kind of push off the worst and hope that the system kind of evolves in a generally positive direction. I guess that's the best I can say. Uh, Major.
3: Sir, what's the, with the Iran nuclear deal on the short term and long term? Is that beneficial, or, or do we kick the can? Down the
0: road. Okay, I'll I'll give a I'll give an example of this, and I guess I have to finish up, don't I? Yes, we're
3: we're on this on, the probably this this be the, the last. Question. Question. Okay,
0: all right, all right. This is this this is a this is a lot of fun because uh, the American political system totally got this wrong. I was in the White House when everything that is important about that Iran decision was taken by. You expect Barack Obama? No, George W. Bush. There were forces in the Bush administration, you can guess who, who wanted to confront Iran and essentially threaten war if the Iranians didn't stop. At this time, we knew about the second uh, Iranian nuclear site at Fodro. Uh, we didn't release it. The Obama administration released it three years later, but we knew about it. We knew that these guys were moving very close to a nuclear program and that that was what they wanted to do. And the argument was, we're going to have to use military forces. There's no other way to deal with it. The argument came back from among others Rice and Gates by me, with who the president went with no we can't afford yet another war in the Middle East we still have Afghanistan and Iraq so we're going to have to go to the international community <clears throat> because the only way to compel Iran because it's going to take compulsion that word compulsion if we're not going to use military force is by the international community imposing dramatic, drastic sanctions on Iranian oil. So we followed that strategy from 2008 all the way to 2015. The P5 plus 1 was not an Obama creation, it's a Bush administration creation. We began those negotiations, I mean they were already going on with the Europeans, uh, and we began them and expanded them. Three of the four UN Security Council Chapter 7, thus force of law, resolutions against Iran were done in the Bush administration. But here's the thing that the Republicans, I'm being partisan here, forgot in the debate about the JCPOA the deal in 2015. Once you go down that road, that's a flock in the road. That's like Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, The Way Not Taken. War. And something like Iraq, only three times hotter, and yeah, we would have stopped the Iranian nuclear program. But you go down the international road, you are forced to adhere to international mindset, international law, international rules. That's all informed by the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and the. UN Security Council, and we can't dominate those, we can't rewrite these things. The negotiation and the result had to be consistent with the interests of the rest of the P5 plus 1 in international law, and that doesn't say you can put Iran in the uh, woodshed forever. It doesn't mean you can continue sanctions on it forever. It means that you have to get Iran to stop the specific violations of the non Proliferation treaty that led to the board of the International Atomic Energy Agency reporting to the Security Council. I'm being technical and specific here, but I have to be because that's how you go down that road. That's the way you deal. M- many of you folks are lawyers. This is a legal approach. And a legal approach, as you know, is different from, I don't know, the chaos KI- of war. And thus, it had to be a legal solution, and it was a legal solution. All this does is move them back from their ability to get a nuclear weapon. From a few weeks at their very closest to roughly a year and increases the degree of inspection on the country which means we're more likely during that year to know that they're doing it giving us some time to react either diplomatically or militarily that's better than what we had but it isn't real good in and of itself though it's the best we could have gotten shot of water period, full stop and this whole debate uh, it was Obama's finest hour and I saw him give him that kind of uh, glowing credit the mistake with it that has colored the whole thing was Obama saw this as leverage to an Obama goes to China line. he truly believed that this would empower the cool kids and we could find an alternative solution to the Middle East with Iran as a partner now he doesn't admit this other than marginally in his interview in Atlantic Magazine to uh, Mr. Goldman, Goldberg, okay. yeah. Uh, but uh, a little of that bowled up, particularly when he said, uh, look, the Saudis have to learn to share the Middle East with Iran. Well, the problem with that is, while I might like Iran more than Saudi Arabia, Iran is an anti-status quo country that was trying to develop a nuclear weapon. Saudi Arabia, for all of its sins, and that could be another hour and a half, uh, is a status quo country that supports our role in the region. Most of the time, in most circumstances, in goofy and stupid and unproductive ways, but they still do it. So anyway, that's the,
3: that's the story behind the uh, JCP. Professor Jeffries, thank you. Know,